when you would think about doing a flexible sigmoidoscopy over a colonoscopy, colonoscopies are quite invasive. And whilst the majority of patients will tolerate it, the particularly the older, frail people uh, may not do so. So actually, if you're because you and but you what you could do if they're presenting, for example, with um, just PR bleeding, then actually, and it's fresh PR bleeding, then actually the likelihood if there's any pathology is that it's going to be on the left side of the colon and therefore you could bring them in for an enema, which they could have in the colonoscopy unit, in the endoscopy unit, and then do a flexible sigmoidoscopy and it's much less invasive and much less taxing on the patient, particularly in terms of bowel prep. And you'll still usually find a diagnosis at that point, which is a good thing. And it's just, it's a, it's quite a nuanced thing and shows that you've got some kind of experience with the day-to-day runnings of a of lower GI endoscopy, which is important. Um, and then imaging wise, I would agree, I would go particularly with young people, I'd try and go for a non-radiating test. So MRI small bowel is very good if you're suspicious of small bowel involvement or of, as you said, complications of something like Crohn's disease. So whether it be stricturing or fistulation, then MRI small bowel is very useful. The other thing that is not available at all centers, but is a very good test is small bowel ultrasound, which is and the right right hands and the skilled radiologist hand is a very very good test and they can get extremely good detail about the small bowel and, and the inflammation and any complications of it so i think you know that but otherwise yeah i would agree that covers the kind of majority of, of differentials that you're going to get there which is good and then coming on to differentials as I was saying at the beginning it is very broad you know for chronic diarrhea you, you really do have to take a, a kind of uh, stratified approach to it because otherwise there will be diagnoses that you miss and we will go through some of those now but I'll give a kind of, but you know the big one obviously is IBD and we'll and Krithi will talk about that a bit more in a second the other thing to think about with, with kind of kind of chronic diarrhea is other things like functional disorders such as IBS it's extremely common and can be quite difficult to to differentiate clinically and particularly once you're getting into secondary care and have not and have made it past the GP then actually you know that's where the the water is quite muddy and it can be difficult to differentiate if someone has that and there's also obviously lots of people that have overlap such something such as IBD and functional problems so they're not mutually exclusive those things and then there's other things like some more rarely cancer can cause it simple diverticulosis can often cause chronic diarrhea and then other things like which Krithi has mentioned but we'll go through in a bit more detail so things like bile acid malabsorption microscopic colitis and small intestinal overgrowth but I think given that it's such a big area in all of gastroenterology I think we'll spend a bit of time now on IBD and Krithi I'll hand over to you for that bit. Sure thank you Michael so we can start off with just talking about a bit about IBD in terms of the definition pathophysiology sort of the clinical presentation and the first-line investigations. So as all of you know, inflammatory bowel disease encompasses two major groups of disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Ulcerative colitis is characterized by diffuse inflammation affecting the mucus of the colon only, whereas Crohn's disease involves patchy transmural ulceration that can affect any part of your GI tract. Around 5% of patients often have features of both subtypes and can be difficult to differentiate between the two of them and can be labeled as indeterminate IBD. The pathophysiology of IBD is quite complex and the exact cause of IBD is unclear. There are many theories around the surrounding pathophysiology of IBD, but essentially it's a combination of infectious, immunological, environmental, dietary and psychosocial factors in an immunologically susceptible individual. So there's no any direct cause, but it's sort of an association between a few stuff causing IBD. Among patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, about 10%, 20% of them will have a family history of inflammatory bowel disease, again pointing out a strong genetic association in this large group of disease. 
In terms of clinical presentation, both Crohn's and UC most commonly present in late adolescence and early adulthood, with a small second peak in about fifth decade. So about 90% of patients with UC often presents with bloody diarrhea, which then triggers investigations and a referral to secondary care. In addition, abdominal pain and urgency are commonly seen in patients with UC. Crohn's disease tends to have a more varied presentation. Chronic diarrhea is the most common symptom, but again, they can present with abdominal pain and weight loss Crohn's. Other patients can often present more acutely with intestinal obstructions, either due to a stricturing disease, or they can present with perianal complications such as abscesses and fistulas. Between 25, about a quarter of these patients can have intra-extra-intestinal manifestations as we covered in the history taking, more often with Crohn's disease, and this can be either in forms of anemia, arthritis, joint symptoms, or again presenting with various dermatological manifestations such as erythematosum or pyoderma gangrenosum. In terms of investigations, I know we've briefly covered this before. There's no single diagnostic test for IBD. It's a combination of endoscopy, endoscopic, radiological, and histological investigations, which we often use in a combination to diagnose patients with IBD. For example, in terms of blood tests, you may, it may show low hemoglobin, iron deficiency anemia, raised CRP, um, and fecal calprotectin, and as mentioned before, fecal calprotectin is often high in patients with IBD, which often, again, get picked up in primary care and get referred. As mentioned before, a positive raised fecal calprotectin does not necessarily mean patients have IBD. Imaging, so you could do abdominal x-ray if they're presenting acutely with uh, severe colitis, just look for signs like thumb printing or any signs of toxic megacolon or mucosal islands. Again, CT scan and MRI small bowel can be used to sort of assess any small bowel involvement in small bowel crumbs. Last but not least, it's uh, endoscopic assessment, as mentioned before. So we can use it, both colonoscopy and flexible endoscopy to sort of tell us the extent of the disease and the disease behavior as patient, patients with IBD can be classified into mild, moderate, and severe category, depending on the endoscopy assessment. Biopsies are also equally important for histological classification. Now, just talking more specifically about endoscopic assessment, macroscopically in Patients with ulcerative colitis, they often have pseudopolyps, which is erythema of the mucosa. And again, extent of the disease is quite important. Some, if they've got extensive colitis, they can often have involvement of the ileocecal valve or terminal ileum as well in patients with ulcerative colitis, which is called as backwash ileitis, basically just an extent of the inflammation from the large bowel to the small bowel. The term proctitis is often used when the inflammation is just limited to the rectum, as not all patients will have an extensive involvement of their colon. Microscopically, in patients with UC, as mentioned before, it only involves the mucosa, and you can often see formation of crypt abscesses in, on the histology. Crohn's, on the other hand, behaves quite differently. It's a transmural inflammation, and again, it may involve any or all parts of the entire GI tract although it is commonly seen in the terminal ileum and perianal locations. Unlike UC, Crohn's disease is characterized by skip lesions, where normal bowel mucosa is found between disease section of the bowels. And on histological examination, again, you can see transmural inflammation and complications such and other complications from Crohn's, such as fibrosis and fistulas, can often be picked up by endoscopy. 
Mm, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think you've covered it very nicely there and that's kind of the, you know, the background stuff there, Kriti. I think the key things, and we'll talk about that when you come into the classification bit in a minute, I think the key things with colitis and Crohn's is that they are, they're, they're, they themselves are distinct diseases, but they're umbrella terms for different, different kind of presentations of it. So ulcerative colitis, you can have just a proctitis, as you mentioned, where it just involves the rectum, you can then have but you can also have a left-sided colitis. So you get the rectum, sigmoid and descending colon involved, but don't need to get anything more extensive than that. And then you can have a pan colitis, which we talked about, so all the way around into the into the cecum. And, and the only way to be sure about that is, as you say, is endoscopic assessment. When you are thinking about ulcerative colitis and you're doing a colonoscopy and you see the changes that you would see that you can diagnose macroscopically and at endoscopy, you can use something called the Mayo scoring system, which has goes from grades one to three, and that gives you an idea of the severity of the of the disease at that time uh, and then similarly whilst there's different kind of types of or extensive ulcerative colitis Crohn's disease in itself is, is has lots of different um has lots of different presentations and patterns to it as well so as you mentioned you can just have isolated perianal disease where you get fish and perianal abscesses forming you can have a, a disease where you had just have terminal ileal inflammation and it's just isolated to that one part of the bowel you can then also have Crohn's colitis, so where large large colon is involved. You can have isolated small bowel uh, disease that doesn't involve the terminal ileum, and then you can have upper GI Crohn's disease as well, as you kind of talked about. It really is anywhere along the gastrointestinal tract. And obviously, you can have a combination of any of those real features together but it's all of that is is why when you're thinking about Crohn's particularly you need to make sure that as you've had a good history taking of all of the kind of symptoms that you'd expect so upper GI as well as your lower GI symptoms and suggest endoscopic and radiological investigations so you get as much information about the GI tract as possible and the reason it's important to understand those different patterns is because actually the management is different the complications are different and they and particularly upper GI Crohn's is is indicative of more of aggressive phenotype um, and then and those people are more likely to get the complications you talked about so because you've got transmural inflammation throughout the lining of the bowel you get the complications of fibrosis and then and then uh, strictures forming which can then in the worst cases can lead to bowel obstruction you also get fistulae forming either between entero enterofistulae between two loops of bowel enterovesicular enterovaginal or enterocutaneous so you can have lots of different fistulas forming and then when you get the transmural inflammation you're also at risk of getting abscesses and collections which are important because you need to identify those people that develop those and treat them aggressively with antibiotics drainage and sometimes surgery so it's a big umbrella and there's a lot to think about and talk about and i think you've done a nice job of kind of summarizing it all there do you want to talk a bit about the kind of the just a, a quick overview of the classification systems and then we can go on to treatment for them sure so as michael mentioned we do have a classification system for both crohn's and ulcerative colitis and the classification we often use the montreal classification so starting off with ulcerative colitis so it's divided into three different groups. So E1 is basically means proctitis, where the involvement is just limited to the rectum. The second group is E2, or left-sided ulcerative colitis, where the involvement goes up beyond and limited to splenic flexure. And E3, or also known as extensive ulcerative colitis, the involvement extends beyond the splenic, which can go all the way up till the cecum. 
for the Montreal classification for Crohn's is slightly different as it takes account the patient's age, the disease location, and the disease behavior. So age, again, divided to A1, A2, and A3. A1 is less than 16 years. A2 is between 17 and, 17 and 40, and A3 above 40 years of age. Uh, location, as Michael pointed out earlier, uh, it's divided into L1, which is Crohn's limited to the ileal ileum only, L2, colonic involvement only, L3, a combination of ileal and colonic involvement, and L4 is an isolated upper disease, where Michael mentioned seems to be, uh, which tends to be more aggressive in nature. And the last criteria used in the Montreal classification for Crohn's is the behavior of the disease. And this again is divided into three different categories. So B1 is non-structuring and non-penetrating. So basically means Crohn's, which is just limited to mucosa. And B2 is where you found strictures, so structuring disease of Crohn's. And B3 is penetrating where you have fistulae formulation. Um, so that's sort of sort of brief summary of the Montreal classification of both the UC and Crohn's disease. And they are, and as you kind of highlighted there, they are quite complex, aren't they? And it's, you know, you, you, I, you as a as a trainee, as an SHO or a trainee registrar, you would not be expected to be able to rattle that off in your head until you're a bit more senior. But I think just knowing that they exist and knowing how to kind of start to think about IBD, particularly with Crohn's, is, is a good is a good thing to know. So I would encourage people to read about it. We've been kind of, we're going to go through the management in a second, but quite briefly, because obviously it's a, it can be an incredibly broad area what i would say is that there's a very good british society of gastroenterology guideline which kind of summarizes all of the ibd stuff we've been talking about uh, and goes into more depth and i would encourage people to read it if they want to learn and, and, and see a bit more about the kind of nuances associated with it but for, i think for a, a kind of summary it's, it's been very good so far 